live. And hi, Jeremy and Sarah and Chris. I don't think I know Jeremy. I don't think Sarah and Chris we've met, but Patrick, you're you? a little dark. I don't know if you want to move a little closer to the camera. It could be your shade open in the background. I don't know, but you're uh, yeah. weird light in here. But we'll see backlighting. I'm never. By the way, Walt, Walt, we're not going to be able to do like IQs and stuff with the sunnies. Right. I just feel like you look a little Kara Swisher with the sunglasses. That's what's killing me <laughs> he, he right now. He has his poker face on for sure. <laughs> uh, By the way, anyone out in the industry that wants to send me a new visor for any of our Light Shed Lives or our, our weekly now podcast, I'm, I'm feel free. I, I can promote any merch you want. Uh, free of charge. I mean, I'm sure between FanDuel and, and, and the Action Network, they can get you some serious merch. Well, free is not our business model. Well, in receipt of uh, <laughs> visors and free merch, it's 100% our business model. <laughs> uh, so uh, thanks everyone for joining. I'm Rich Greenfield uh, with my partners, Walt Pysik and Brandon Ross at Lightshed. We are really excited today to have a panel of experts on the topic of sports betting. I'll introduce them in a second. But this week, what's new, we launched a podcast. It's called the Light Shed Podcast. If you aren't a subscriber, please shoot us an email. It's a private podcast. So we're not putting it up for free out there for the whole world, but we are letting everyone in our network listen. So if you aren't subscribing, we can help get you set up. Uh, with that, I'm really excited. We have Chris Grove, Jeremy Kudin, Matt King, Patrick Keene, and Sarah Slane to talk about sports betting. There is no topic in the world of media and tech right now that isn't more exciting than sports betting. And it's sort of, the irony of it is we don't have a lot of sports, but we're gonna start having sports before everyone joined. We were talking about EPL coming back tomorrow. We've basically been living on Bundesliga and a little bit of NASCAR and a little bit of golf uh, over the course of the last few weeks. But I think that's gonna change hopefully over the course of the next six to eight weeks where we start to see a pretty big surge in the return of sports. but. Maybe as a, a way of framing it, just because, um, Sarah, you, you've been so instrumental in getting us to the point where we would want to have a panel like this on the topic of sports betting, um, given what you were able to achieve in overturning legislation. And, um, you know, I, I guess from a really high level, how do you think about the, you know, the size of sports betting? Like is sports betting in and of itself a massive business? Or is it really an on-ramp to getting people to go to casinos, driving people to mobile casino? Like, is this just about sports betting or is this a much bigger opportunity that goes far beyond just the sports betting component? Um, well, thank you. And thank you for having me speak first. Um, hopefully, if I do freeze up, Chris can pick up where I left off. Um, but look, I, I think that this is obviously a much bigger opportunity than anyone had anticipated. I know we were sort of joking around earlier with DraftKings and all the action that's happening there on Wall Street, but um, obviously a huge shift now for the industry to be able to move to a mobile platform, not just with sports betting, but online casino. And then also... Uh-oh. We're going to have to get Sarah a new internet connection. Okay. Frozen <laughs> no, no, you're good. You're back. Go ahead. Uh, I told you before. You guys said you jinxed me. So we hadn't had any problems mm -hmm. yet. I said this is going to happen. Uh, my fault. Sorry. No, no, no. So the, the long and short of it is, is obviously massive opportunity. More states that are coming on much quicker than anyone had anticipated. Um, you know, likely to going to see more states opening up quicker like Illinois. Um, 
you know, Michigan, possibly Ohio. So uh, a lot of action happening, uh, a lot more opportunities for companies like FanDuel to be out there and uh, acquiring more customers. Is COVID a real catalyst for getting states open, uh, opened up for, for mobile? I look at it and I was thinking about the tax revenue shortfall and everyone saying that that's going to be a big catalyst um, for legalization. But I think New Jersey did, what, $36 million in tax revenue last year. And we're talking about a, what, several billion dollar shortfall, I think a $10 billion shortfall. Does it even move the needle enough for states to focus on it now? Especially as you you compare it to other things, like I think revenue in Colorado from marijuana tax was like 300 million on last year on half the amount of people that are in New Jersey. So is this a high priority or are there going to be other ways that states look to make up that shortfall? Chris, yeah, you want to take or either Sarah or Chris? Yeah, or, or even Jeremy. I mean, Jeremy can, he's on the ground as well. I mean, we're all living this because this is where the, the business opportunity lies. But you know, typically, having come from the casino side of the world, um, you know, heavily, heavily taxed industry, um, sports betting because the margins are so low, and that tax rate doesn't necessarily translate into massive dollars. But look, I mean, I think that any state at this point right now would take revenue, certainly revenue that's leaving the state and going to offshore companies and recouping that. But also it is absolutely a lift for the entire industry, not just from the mobile side, but obviously in the brick and mortar and on the casino side, um, you know, shifting also to online casino, a much bigger, I think, tax revenue opportunity for states. So, you know, look, yes, is it is it small compared to other um, other potential revenue streams? Certainly. But would you rather recapture lost revenue, one? And number two, don't you want to be able to compete with the state that's next to you? Look at New Jersey, look at New York, money flowing over the state line into New Jersey, leaving New York. I think that that is another really compelling argument that's going to move legislators. I think the thing also to keep in mind here is that there are two pieces that states can look to when they're thinking about how do we get revenue from this. There's the tax revenue piece, which as you correctly noted, Brandon, it takes a while to ramp up. So it's not something that's necessarily going to hit the state budget this year. You can look at a state and assume in any given state a ramp of probably somewhere between like three to six years before a market really gets to that baseline maturity state. But the other piece is the license fee piece. You think about a state like Pennsylvania, where they were charging 10 million bucks a pop for a sports betting license, 12 million bucks a pop for an online gambling license. That is a way that states, assuming that they're of at least you know, a, a, a moderate size to be able to justify those bigger ticket license fees, that is an avenue for the regulation of online gambling to inject revenue immediately into state budgets. So I think that states that have the capacity to charge those larger ticket fees are likely to look at regulation of online sports betting, online casino. I think the other important frame here too is to think about the momentum that was enjoyed for COVID. Very significant momentum. I gambling in my time. It's not much room for sports betting to accelerate. Online casino, on the other hand, I think really neutral. 
across most of the United States. So if you're talking about where's the greatest room for a topic to in terms of pre-COVID, post-COVID, a lot more room to move on the online casino side, the online sports bank side, where we were already on a, a pretty rocket-like trajectory in terms of states getting that one done. So Jeremy, why don't you fill us in on why it is so different state by state in terms of the taxation and and what should it be? I mean, how can anyone even make money in Pennsylvania with, you know, between the, the fee that Chris was talking about and, and the 36, 40 percent tax rate? Just give us your give us your take on that, please. Well, let's put Pennsylvania. People always ask about Pennsylvania. and We haven't seen any state follow that. Pennsylvania passed this law in 2017-ish before the court granted cert before it was, you know, well before the, uh, the, the case was, was uh, or the decision was issued. So that 34% was sort of like, hey, if there's ever a day when we pass sports betting or when sports betting is legal, we're going to, it's going to be, you can just tax it at 34%. No, no other state. We look at Illinois, which is a state that really does tax things at very high rates. It was only 15% there if memory right. serves. So like, I think that the highest you're looking at is 15%, even in the blue states. Look, we have a state-by-state -state system. Some of you are in states where you're allowed to eat in restaurants indoors. Others are like me who still have to pick it up you know, through takeout. So each state's going to have its own approach. I think the one thing I would add to the earlier conversation or earlier question is sports betting is voluntary tax revenue. In other words, people are willing to pay it. Most other taxes that are imposed are, are <clears throat> against people's will. So I think you're going to see states say, look, even if it's $100 million or $50 million, that's money we wouldn't have gotten anyway. And as Chris, I think, was pointing out, it froze on me a little bit, is that people want to do this anyway. There are a lot of states that are like, look, I, I, this is something that's popular that we'd like to pass that we don't view the same as other forms of gaming. And if there's a little bit of money that can come in as part of that, well, that will put us over the edge. Got it. And I think in the, the states with the highest tax rates, it's run by... Uh, um, sports betting is run by the lottos in those states, generally not Pennsylvania. Um, in, your, in your opinion, Jeremy, do you think lottos running, um, running sports betting is, is a viable approach? I mean, it's, it's certainly, a, a, you know, that's a, probably a crisp question. For me, I, I, I would be opposed to it. I think that the competitive mobile market that you see in New Jersey, that you see in Pennsylvania, that you see in Indiana – that's the approach. When I think of sports betting, when they talk about 22 states, I don't think of it that way. I think of 13 states and, and really 13 states or 11 or 10 states that, you know, to me, legal sports betting, when we talk about it, I'm thinking competitive mobile markets like Colorado, like, like New Jersey uh, and every other state, we need to get to that place. Because I, I thought just you were going to say New York for a second. I almost you almost there. did. You I, almost slipped up. I, I saw did. it. You yeah. wanted to say I, New York. I, I wanted to say New York. Uh, it's it's like my white whale. Uh, but no, no, no. I, I saw it. I saw it in your face. Yeah. Yeah. And then the, the other thing. I, oh, I'm sorry, Jeremy. No, no, no. It's wishful thinking. I just I think <laughs> that that that's what we should be aiming for. It's not when we talk 22. That's a to me a false number. It should be that competitive mobile market of of let's get, you know, 13 to to whatever that number is going to be, 35, 36. But, yeah, I was just um, going to add on, on DC, you talk about like lottery running it and there not being much competition. And I think that the first go around in the district, you know, you have one basically operator that's there. And I think it speaks to competitiveness and really driving the best product then for consumers. And when you only have one company out there that's offering a product, you know, they're just not compelled then to compete. 
DC is going to be really interesting because you have now Virginia and Maryland. We're going to have to sue Charter. <laughs> I, I would just, I wanted, I, to add, I wanted to add something to, Jer to Jeremy's point. Um, you know, when I look at, at, at states where online betting is available, a acronym we officially like to say at, at Action Network are SWOBA states, where there's really only five, where you have New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Indiana, West Virginia, and now Colorado, hopefully soon Tennessee and Virginia. But when we convert our customers to Matt King and to others on the sportsbook side, we're really singularly focused on those SWOBA states, which we hope to grow by, you know, into the double digits well into next year. And just to follow up on, on, I want to tie what Chris just said back to where Sarah started. Matt, as you look at the, the sports betting opportunity, but then look at the side of this business, which is the mobile casino side of it, what are you seeing? Like, I mean, do you think ultimately is mobile casino bigger than sports betting? Like, how do you frame the, the size of the opportunity and how we should think about the markets and like, you know, again, you've got mobile betting, you've got mobile casino, and then you've got driving, both of those driving to actual physical casinos. Like how do all three of those fit together in terms of size and scale and what you're all trying to accomplish? It's all fit together very nicely. So if you look at um, mobile casino or online casino, that market is probably the same size as sports betting or a little bit higher. Um, and so, by authorizing both sports betting and mobile sports betting and mobile casino, you end up with a market and tax revenues that are at least 2x. And then what New Jersey has shown and now Pennsylvania is showing is that the having mobile sports betting and having online casino actually expands the audience for gaming. It's not cannibalistic to the land-based casinos. And it actually, and we do this with our casino partners, gives us a platform to actually introduce whole new sets of consumers to the land-based properties because we run cross promotions where we take our online only users and drive them into the physical casinos for different promotional activities and live events back in the days when you could have live events. Um, and so the reality is you know, what most states now understand is how important a tax revenue stream gaming is in general and authorizing both online casino and online sports betting actually reinforces, not only creates new tax revenues from online direct, but also helps grow the existing tax base for the land-based operations. As, as you guys think about what states are coming up, um, maybe for, for Matt, in terms of legalization, which ones are you most excited about? Which ones? do you think can happen in the next year or two that can really move the needle for you? So I think in terms of like the states that are coming up, I think Michigan's going to be a great market. Um, I think they did a law in a very smart way. You know, for us personally, we're super excited about our partner in Motor City. We're going to be right in downtown Detroit. Um, and I think it, it will be another example of creating a competitive mobile marketplace for both casino and sports. And frankly, how much, um, revenue that can drive and just how big an industry that can create. So it'll kind of sit beside Pennsylvania and New Jersey in that sense. You know, look, I think beyond that is, and Jeremy and I always go back and forth on, and frankly, Sarah as well, like trying to handicap individual states is hard. Um, you know, I would share Jeremy's view of hopefully New York is a white whale that one day we catch. 
Um, but the reality is what excites me is actually just the portfolio of states that are all looking at it and all close. And I think you'll get, you know, one or two material states next year and a whole lot of kind of mid-sized states and put yourself in a place where you know, if you look at the data today, you kind of roughly have 20% of the population that's in those um, states that have authorized a competitive mobile marketplace you know, and hopefully that number in the next 12 months gets close to 35 or 40 percent of the U.S. population is in states with a competitive mobile marketplace. I don't know, so, Jeremy, if you have a different view because I'm signing you up to this work. So, Well, no, no, no. But I, I would just as Jeremy answers it, maybe if, if, if Jeremy could do it and Chris and Sarah, feel free to jump in. But what are the barriers? I mean, whether it's tribes, whether it's, low, you know, like what, what are the things we should all be thinking about in terms of the key barriers to getting any of this done? And, you know, maybe circle back to where Brandon started a bunch of this conversation, which is COVID may not make a whole lot of difference in terms of filling the the budget gaps, but has COVID actually made it easier to get some of these, uh, quote unquote, obstacles out of the way? Yeah. Oh, go ahead, sir. No, 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 please. I'm I'm happy to sort of take a, a, you know, a leap on that one. But given that I worked with the industry, I mean, I think the industry can be its worst enemy sometimes. Like, it can turn into a circular firing squad from a competitive standpoint. And so that is probably one of the most important things that you can do is just getting all of the industry in a state aligned behind, you know, the, the purpose and the cause so that no one feels like one of them has a competitive advantage or disadvantage. I mean, Matt can attest to this, obviously in Illinois, there was a lot of um, sharp elbows, you know, happening, wanting to put people in penalty boxes or companies in penalty boxes. And so that, you know, the path to getting legislation done, you have to make it very clear. Jeremy can speak to this. You got to make it as easy as possible. People, legislators certainly will come up with a bajillion reasons as to why they don't want to do something. And if the industry can't get- oh, wait, Hold on. So stop, stop there. What is, maybe Jeremy, what's the biggest reason legislatures say no? Like what's the biggest reason not to legalize sports gambling today? Just stay. It's. Uh, I just want to make sure I'm off mute. It's really just stake. It, it is all about the stakeholders and obstacles from the stakeholders. So, like, if you look at the. But there's the no power, politician like, that just by just be, beyond special interest groups that are pressuring them. There's no reason why we shouldn't be legalizing gambling at this point. No one has a good like ethical reason of like I just don't like sports gambling at this point. Th- there is still conservative opposition. Like, if you look at the world of daily fantasy sports, which was a precedent. You know, if you look at that precedent that we passed, I think what 22 states almost all of which have also followed up with sports betting, there was still opposition down in the South. We never passed a bill in Georgia, you know, because there was just concerns about what would happen at the polls. That's always something that drives them. So the South is always going to be harder. And then you've got the tribes in the West that's a problem. I think what you saw with sports betting so far is the Midwest, the Northeast have all been, I don't want to say cakewalks, not at all, but they've been active. They've wanted to do it. Exactly your point, Rich, you know, politicians are like, yeah, this is something we're going to do. It's the South and the West where we have our work still cut out for us. And that we're, you know, that that's going to be our focus the next three years. And Rich, I'd, I'd, again, it, it's, I think, important not to conflate the political context for sports betting with the political context for online casino. I think sports betting fits in a much different box, both culturally and politically. And I think the rapid spread of sports betting legislation over the last couple of years is a testament to that where you've seen online casino, again, really stuck in the mud. And so when you're thinking about what are the hurdles, both from a policy standpoint and also from an industry standpoint, they, they really are distinct when you move from talking about sports betting to talking about online casino. They, the two topics are regarded 
uh, almost as, as diametrically different, fundamentally different by both policymakers and within the industry. There's far less of that divisive attitude that Sarah was talking about on the topic of sports betting versus casino. But broad frame from the industry perspective, Everyone gets in the industry that online gambling will expand the size of the overall pie, but it will also disrupt the current competitive environment. It will make winners and losers. That expansion will not be distributed equally across all the operators in a given market. And that reality, arguably more than anything else, is, is one of the things that's really causing the industry to drag their feet. If you're in a commanding competitive position in your market today, you may look at online gambling as more of a threat than an opportunity. Okay. I'll just throw in one thing on COVID though. Just a, the one benefit of COVID, the one benefit, the, the, the silver lining here is you look at California, there was never going to be a play in the legislature in California this year. I'm not telling you that that play is going to ultimately be successful, but the fact that Bill got out of committee with opposition from the tribes, that only happens because of a revenue number and gives it an, a, a reason or an impetus for people to act. So I think Louisiana acting as quickly as they did to get that referendum up. So COVID is definitely going to have a long-term tail. We, you know, online poke, online casino never had an opportunity. It was never alive after, you know, in a world like that where a recession was in play or when states Pat were desperate for revenue. Patrick, Matt, either of you confident in California? I don't know if I'd say confident, but I, I think I would echo all that Jeremy said. And, you know, the fifth largest economy in the world would be game-changing for and transformative for sports betting. And I think, look, I think the other thing is the way we look at it is always over the kind of longer term, not necessarily year by year. And, you know, do we think California will get there eventually and most states will get there eventually? Yeah, we do. Um, it's just a question of what sequence do they go? Because at the end of the day, this is something consumers want to do. And a place like California always holds itself up to be the bellwether. Um, and so I think you're in a place where they'll eventually get there. It's just a question of when. Yeah, well, to, to paraphrase, I think a common saying from uh, from finance, the argument to be made that California can stay irrational a, a lot longer than we can all stay liquid or alive, <laughs> for that matter. I mean, I, I was there testifying a couple of weeks ago uh, on, in support of of uh, Gray's bill, and you know, the reality was, for all of the talk of is this a new environment, is there new momentum, has COVID changed the reality, the facts on the ground that bill ran smack into the same fundamental tribal opposition that basically every uh, similar attempt going back a decade with online poker has run into. So in some of these states, California and Florida are good examples. I won't call the, the macro issues intractable, but you're talking about groups that are deeply entrenched, really deeply entrenched on broader issues regarding larger in that state. It can be on gambling, sports betting, or casino, to thread the needle in those situations. And, and even something as transformative as COVID doesn't necessarily resolve those intractable uh, differences that are preventing us in the first place. Maybe just to expand a little bit beyond sports betting and online casino, what about non-sports betting on event-based outcomes? I know, I think it was West Virginia legalized betting on politics, Chris. I, it, is that going to become a bigger theme throughout these states? I think where you'll probably see that most reliable. I mean, there was a big bet on who was going to talk first during this. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. Well, Esports, I, I think, bets. is where you're going to see a lot of that conversation focus. 
and and you can argue about whether or not esports betting is sports betting. But if you're talking about alternatives and sort of opening the door beyond stick and ball or traditional sports betting, I think esports is is where you start to see that conversation happen among regulated operators. But it's important to remember you also have, and and I see a new startup every week that's pitching something like this. You have a lot of interest in creating sort of a social sports betting. Uh, a broader sort of prediction driven, whether it's free to play or, or pay to play. There are a lot of companies that are attempting to do prediction themed gaming that sits outside of the traditional regulatory structure for gambling. Matt, this probably sounds you know somewhat familiar to you. So there is going to be that pressure, I think, from a broader industry that's interested in how do we make money off of consumers' interest in predicting things and that the innovations and the games and the product set for that demand may not necessarily come from within the regulated gambling industry, if that makes sense. I think you're going to see that envelope pushed more, not by regulated operators, but by VC-backed startups that are looking for a way to play in this space without competing head-on with the, the DraftKings and the FanDuel's of the world. Can we go back to cannibalization? I think, Chris, you had mentioned winners and losers, and Matt was saying you didn't see cannibalization. So I'm hoping maybe Sarah can weigh in here. I mean, Vegas didn't appear to be impacted that much. Maybe updates on like what's going on in, in, uh, in Atlantic City, given the legalizations in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Um, is, yes. this, is this cannibalizing the tribes? Is, is this are, And the casinos, are they doing anything to incentivize people back in? Yeah, I mean, look, this is the boogeyman that's been out there for decades. As far as I mean, the uh, the debate around online gaming has been going on for, I'm not joking, like 20 years in the U.S. And a lot of it was built around protectionism, certainly of Nevada and Las Vegas. And we still have major operators that are out there today that do not want to see online casino. They are afraid of it cannibalizing their existing business. Um, when we, when I was at the American Gaming Association and leading the industry around why we wanted to see legalized sports betting, this was one of the first issues we had to tackle, which was you don't actually have a monopoly in Nevada. I mean, you, you are. Tr so weird because it's perfect and then it just disappears. I just, it's every time I talk, like this yeah. would be my boyfriend's, this would be my boyfriend's like best dream every time i spoke my internet broke. <laughs> right. great, please, please great continue. continue though it, it was just continue so it, it, there look there has been a major push by some of the biggest operators in this country to shut down online casino they don't want to see it happen they view it as a competitive threat they've spent millions of dollars to shut it down i think that the momentum now there's too much Look, and I think to, to Sarah's broader point, if you look at the experience and you see it, it, it's pretty clear, right? If you look at Atlantic City's trajectory, so retail gambling's trajectory before online gambling was authorized, and then you overlay the impact of online gambling revenue, there's been so much, you're talking about, you know, in excess of a billion dollars in total since they launched online casino in New Jersey, you couldn't hide that impact if it was coming at the net expense of Atlantic City. Does some demand move over? Yeah, absolutely. Are they, by and large, two different audiences that gamble in different ways for different reasons and with different wallets? New Jersey's experience definitely suggests so. And I want to make clear, I'm not disagreeing with Matt. I definitely think that online gambling does expand the overall size of, of Pi. You're definitely not just taking from one bucket moving into another. My point is more that that expansion is not necessarily going to be distributed evenly or predictably 
among right. the stakeholders in a given market. And that's what I think really scares stakeholders in some of these markets. Patrick, um, how, how important is in, is in-game betting? What percentage of it is it right now for U.S. sports betting? But more importantly, in like five to 10 years from now, do you think in-game betting will be, prop bets will be the majority um, of, of mobile sports betting? I'm going to toss that to the person who knows the answer, who is Matt King. <laughs> um, I appreciate that vote of confidence, Patrick. Uh, I sat on like seven panels with you when that question has been asked, and you answer it a lot more eloquently than I do. So I'm going to give it to the principal source. I, I just feel like that. this is a great way to have synergy between the two companies right now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Look, in-game betting is already, a, frankly, a majority of our bets. Um, I think there's a lot of, I think, myth out there that it kind of is coming. And the reality is in-game betting is here. Um, we see an incredible amount of engagement on it. We see a ton of bet volume on it. Um, and it is in many of our sports, kind of majority of our bets. Um, wow. now Matt, see maybe if you could clarify how you all define in-game betting, because I think that there is a little bit of a loose definition around this concept of what live betting means, what in-game betting means. I think it might be helpful for no, maybe it, to clear the air a little bit there. That's a fair distinction, Chris. And I think it's it's less about a distinction between in-game and live betting because those two are basically the same thing, right? Any bet that happens on an event once it started would be an in-game bet. I think where the, the difference is, is there's in-game betting and then there's separately prop bets, which are, you know, is the next uh, pitch going to be a ball or a strike? And because the reality is most of the in-game bets we see are still bets on the main markets. So spread, money, line, or total. And then prop bets, still an incredible amount of engagement, lower volume because prop bets generally tend to be smaller bets. Um, but again, on the average NFL game, we have 250 different things that you can bet on, um, even running during the game. So the opportunity is there. I think there's some innovation opportunity around the user interface of it. I think there's some opportunity to merge the watching experience with the betting experience better. Um, but by and large, you know, in-game bets, prop bets, they're all here and people are engaging with them in very meaningful ways. Patrick, though, do you have to help educate people on, you know, to, to make that type? I mean, how important do, is kind of, you know, you on the data side and sort of the analytics side, how do you help people? If the, if, the, if the world is moving more and more in that direction towards in-game, it would seem like information becomes more and more important in that process. Absolutely. I mean, we as a service are here to inform betters, to give data, content, analytics, the ability to measure the success of their bets, track those bets. And we're fortunate to have one of the businesses we acquired, Fantasy Labs, that really informs a lot of our prop betting analysis and tools, which is uh, really informs when you're thinking about the NBA or the NFL or the kind of bets that you'd be doing on player props. That product informs that user and that subscriber. Uh, remember, we're a subscription platform as well as a, a content and product platform. But absolutely, to Matt's point, we know we need to build better tools to inform the better that wants to bet live, which was super fun for people last weekend with golf. You know, golf has always been sort of a challenger in terms of a rights or league, uh, rights holder or league. And we've seen explosion in our golf content, our golf coverage, the number of people that are tracking bets in golf. 
it, it, it looked almost like an NFL Sunday in terms of the engagement we were seeing with a golf match. So people are starving for sports to come back and live betting in golf is very fun. And we create lots of tools to inform people who are going to bet live in golf. Matt, do you think the volume is, 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 is it more because the volume is happening during the game or is someone deciding that they're not going to put their bet down until basically the game starts? Um, not 100% sure I follow the question, Walt, but the... Meaning, meaning that, like, if I'm watching Eagles Redskins yeah. and I'm going to be hitting that line as, as the game progresses, depending on, like, whether Carson gets a first down or not, or am I just waiting to make my one bet on the line after the first quarter? No, it's more, much more about kind of additional bets as opposed to, um, you know, waiting. Just the, if more you volume, right. It's more engaging to do the, the in-game betting, right? Right, and it's also just, like, it's fun, right? It's, you know, oh, this... It's awesome. You're going to make this field goal. What's going to happen in this drive? And yeah. You know, I saw a question in the Q&A about like social betting. You know, and the reality is like part of the social aspect is like, part of what drives the in-play is the social aspect, right? People are yep. talking about the game. Then they, then they go in and put their bets on about a specific Yeah, play. texting your friends like, hey, the line just moved to seven. You got to hit that or whatever it is. Yeah. Exactly. So like I, I think there is a lot of social experience that drives the volume of in-play betting, but it's, it's additional betting as opposed to people waiting. Gotcha. Are there any of the sports that benefit in particular from in-game betting? Or is that just like a... a <laughs> yeah, well, what I would usually say, and I feel hesitant to say it uh, given the current headline cycle, is baseball is usually the one that... <laughs> Benefits because it's, so, it's so boring. There, yes, I have to no, do something. Will, <laughs> I, I will. We're an official partner of baseball. I love baseball like I love all my children. The exact same. Um, <laughs> yeah, but what makes baseball interesting is is the reality of live, quote unquote, truly live betting. That will require you know, a low latency broadcast feed, right? You have an eight second delay. So you're like getting to the, what's the next pitch going to be or what's the next play going to be is going to be hard. That said, the beauty of baseball is you have innings. And so like over-unders on innings, you know, what's going to happen? Like it creates a very discrete event that people can get their head around. Oh, I want to bet this inning. And then because the inning closes, people can then place a bet for the next inning. Um, and so just the structure of baseball creates a lot of really interesting opportunities. That said, you got to have baseball games. So my fingers are crossed for baseball. We will eventually have baseball games, even if we don't have them this summer. We will eventually have baseball again, I'm pretty sure. Will there be any fans left? <laughs> well, if they're all at home, then they've got more time to bet, Brandon. <laughs> all right. Um, when you when you think about sports though like what are the other sports we should be thinking about like a golf probably wasn't one you know sarah i guess maybe if you think about sports that we should be thinking about i mean uh, you know college football is number two to pro football uh basketball's next but like what else you know what else are you seeing sport wise i think you were recently retained by hockey or you're advising the nhl like where do the other sports sort of fit in? Like, does anything else matter after football and basketball? Like if you kind of size them, like what's, what's, where's the real opportunities next? Yeah. I mean, I think that, and I'm going to 
speak quickly, so my Wi-Fi doesn't like shut me down immediately. But um, it, I, I feel like every so, someone in the now, someone in the chat said maybe turn the video off because then it. it I know I less. might do that. I'm going to okay. do that. You know I'm here. Um, <laughs> so you know I think every single sport right now is looking at this opportunity, just like every single media company is looking at the opportunity to figure out how they leverage their content and become part of the sphere. Um, I, I PLL is one of my clients. They're you know obviously smaller, but they're thirsty. They don't have to deal with a lot of the bureaucracy around some of the bigger leagues and they can be innovative. And so I think it presents, you know, some really cool and unique opportunities to experiment, certainly in some of that in-play proposition betting that Matt was talking about earlier. But, you know, I think in, and this was the, the anomaly here, right? A couple months ago with table tennis and the amount of volume that the industry was seeing during COVID, just not having a lot of content to tap into. And, these Russian table tennis games and how much you know interest there was. High volume sport, lots of matches, lots of plays, very similar to tennis. So a lot of opportunity then for for bets to take place. And you know that's why I think Matt was talking about just baseball doing so well. You know, slower sport, hockey a little bit hot, harder, faster. You know, not not a ton of things to bet on. But look, I think like I said, everyone. No. We we tried we tried. I mean, it was a, I, it was a, it was a good suggestion. I can Patrick. jump in. I can yeah. jump in there. Yeah. So because we have so much first party better data, the, because people are tracking their picks through the Action app, we're able to see across different books where they're actually betting. And we've seen an explosion in Bundesliga as an example. Obviously, playing into the thesis of people will bet what there is to bet on. Yep. Uh, and another narrative here that's been encouraging has been UFC. So UFC, we're seeing three times the volume of pick tracking. We're seeing four times the volume of content consumption. So that's been very big. And as I mentioned, again, uh, PGA Tour, we have a partnership with PGA Tour called Golf Bet. And we did for the first time a golf simulcast on Twitter with PGA Tour rights with Darren and Ravel and Jason Sobel, who cover golf for us. And it was a secondary golf betting experience. It wasn't your typical kind of experience that you see. And there were about seven different partners and we were well above any of them by several orders of magnitude. And these are folks like Dude Perfect and uh, Golf Digest and Sky Sports. So people have a lot of interest in a sort of secondary experience or maybe even a primary experience in viewing sports events where the content and the experience and the coverage is singularly focused on sports betting for that sport. Why don't, Look, why don't I think what, what action sorry, is ahead, doing, yeah, what, what action is doing is, is worth noting. I think Barstool is trying to do something uh, in a similar arena. There is this open question of how makes sports betting entertaining, right? Think about poker in the 2000s. And there was literally, I, I think, a poker show on almost every network, whether it was celebrity home poker game or high stakes poker. You, you could not produce these things quickly enough because they found a way to make this type of gambling actually entertaining on its own merits. I, I think that that's what action is shooting for. I think they're definitely in the lead in terms of who's going to answer that question. But I think it's a fascinating question. I think it's an open question of how do you make this an actually entertaining experience, especially for a pa casual participant. That is the riddle that I think poker solved to a T. And that's one of the reasons why it enjoyed such popularity for so long. I, and I think that'll be one of the most fascinating narratives of this whole industry over the next few years. Who's that riddle? They do it 
can it be done at all? Fundamentally, is this something that can be entertaining to, to a larger audience? And that thing is so fascinating to me about watching what action is doing, watching how uh, Barstool and Penn are, are going to work, and then watching everyone else kind of follow in trying to answer that question. So let's shift over to, to a competitive landscape, maybe. Um, maybe let's start with Patrick. I mean, there's a lot of competing sports books out there. And how do, how do consumers differentiate between them? And if it's if it ends up being incentives, um, is that ends up being one of these kind of Uber Lyft race to the bottoms on just basically paying consumers to play and then not making any money on it? Well, it really depends on the sophistication of the better. Uh, I think that DraftKings and FanDuel obviously are, are real leaders in the category for, by several orders of magnitude. And much of that has been speed to market and I think savvy marketing. But the reality is if you're a sophisticated better or starting to become a sophisticated better, you're going to bet based on price and odds. So that's where you come to a place like action where you're gonna be able to make a decision on who has the best odds, who has the best prices, and you're essentially able to shop the different books, which we think is gonna be an experience in the future that's gonna become even more important. Um, you know, And the other part, and you mentioned it as well, is producing unique offers. We do those with FanDuel, we do those with DraftKings, we do those with MGM, William Hill, everybody in the market potentially that are gonna create smart offers to capture customers because the reality too, and Matt can talk about this all day, the, the, there's only five states as I mentioned that are mobile, those SWOBA states, and, and, and that's where the capturing is gonna be at scale. And we're gonna have a dozen years of that opportunity depending on how quickly states legalize. But in summary, it's, it's really depends on odds uh, and price. For do you think everyone's very price focused? It doesn't have to do with the user interface or um, how easy it is to sign up and things like that. Cause it seems like in a lot of other consumer products that those types of things end up mattering, not just, um, you know, price. Well, I, I think the user experience is, is very important. And I think users are often doing so. But if you look at Europe as an example, the average better in Europe has like 5.6 apps on their phone. In the US, it's probably like 1.6. And, and, and sorry, 5.6 apps where they have actively paid, placed a bet within some period of time. That's right. And yeah, again, that's based on price and odds. And they're just yeah, price. Yeah. Difference, just more to create liveliness in this panel. I'm going to disagree with Patrick a little bit. Um, <laughs> The you know, Europe doesn't have the same sign-up requirements around know your customer and everything else. So, like the friction of adding a new account is a lot higher. Um, and I think there are it's a much less sophisticated audience. And so, can you just give us like a in thirty seconds give us an example of what that means U.S. versus Europe, just so the audience understands what you're getting at. Sure. So from a sign-up flow perspective in the U.S., you have to give like your social security number and it needs to be matched. Your address needs to be matched to a third-party database. Whereas in Europe, you can basically just put your like name and address in and you're not really checking it at all. And so the level of data that you need to provide is much, much higher in the U.S. And that friction, I think, means that in general, what we've seen is as long as you treat a better well, they will be loyal. Now, I think Patrick's right at the high end of the market where you have people that are very, very sophisticated. Um, they'll shop on price, but by and large, you know, 80 to 90% of the market, at least at this point, is just looking for something that's easy to sign up, that's easy to understand, and then they can make kind of safe and fast payments on. Matt, how do you think about plugging into um, Patrick's platform? It, I mean, it, it, 
it, the more people or the more, more operators that plug into Patrick's platform, does that help enable a race to the bottom sit- situation in terms of price? I mean, look, I think every operator needs to make the, their own decision about whether or not to kind of plug into somebody like Patrick's platform. Yeah, I think, as Patrick has said, you know, we're a partner of theirs, um, you know, but we don't necessarily do the full integration. Um, and, you know, that's something we always kind of take a look at. Like from our perspective, um, you know, it's less of it's you know, using third party platforms to grow your advantage, you know, is a kind of strategic decision everybody can make and grow your distribution. I think from our perspective, we're focused on creating the best user experience and the best product out there. You know, one of the differentiations we have is, you know, we just have more stuff to bet on than anybody else. And so, you know, we had products out there this past season and continue to where nobody else has them. And so from our perspective, you know, the, that's a differentiator that's not price, um, but it's really important to people. And so, I would echo kind of the earlier comment, which is, you know, competition just raises everybody's game. And so, you know, it's just a question about how that competition plays itself out. I just wanted to clarify what that integration was, Brandon, that you were referring to and that Matt was alluding to, which is our BetSync platform, where we actually work with individual books so that if you place a bet at parks or you place a bet at PointsBet or increasingly several other books, that bet automatically gets sicked into our pick tracking platform. So you can see how you do against different strategies, against different sports. And in a sense, kind of call that you're sort of, in many ways, the Expedia of sports betting, where you're able to actually select different books and you're able to sort of track your success over different categories over time. This is a good segue maybe, maybe to an audience question, um, maybe to Chris or Sarah. Can Basically asking, just describe who the sports betting consumer is. What are they like? And how do you find these the consumers that the industry is tr- trying to target to grow the market? Maybe Chris, you want to take that one? You take it. I mean, it's not me. So sure. <laughs> it's everyone else. It's a- yeah, it's everyone but Sarah. So I think that's the the important thing. Look, I, the thing to avoid here is about the audience as a model. It isn't really doing continuum of consumers who are betting different on different things for different reasons. And in the U.S., your brand sort of angle different type of bettors. Some brands are really trying to position themselves as we're the value brand. Other brands kind of position themselves more as were the the fun, the engaged, naturally alongside your casual sports experience brand. So th- there really is, and I think Matt described on the upper end, you do have a small percentage of the total market that's the highly price sensitive. Hold on, Chris. Feed. You just you just cut out there. A small percentage of the market which does what? Because you just muted out. Oh boy. So so maybe. The, oh the Sarah Slane disease. You have the Sarah Slane disease right well, now. Do so. I look like that when I freeze? Yes, you do. I it's do. okay. So uh, wait, l- l- let me come back. L- let's let the internet settle for a second. I'm going to throw it over to Jeremy <laughs> for a second. Um, one of the questions we got is just on, um, this is the problems of doing Zoom in this new world. Although we got all five of you together, which would sort of be very hard to do in, in, in not the virtual world. So um, is there anything regulatory wise? I mean, we're sitting here, you know, it, it's obviously we're sitting here. Sometimes I think we forget, given what's happened over the last few weeks, that it's a presidential election year. Um, the Senate is like five seats from flipping. Like, is there anything regulatory wise that could derail 
either accelerate or derail this whole conversation as you look at what could happen in November? I don't think so. I mean, if you look at the states that have already done this, it's almost split between Democrats and Republican-controlled states. Uh, I think that there are going to be some concerns over the next month or two. Even years are always the worst years to pass legislation. So if you look even like 2018, we only got a few states. I know that was a pass the year. Then 2019, you get like 13 states. I think this year, obviously, COVID interrupted it. But we might end up with six to seven states. Next year, have 15 states. Legislators are just concerned about what's going to happen at the polls. And with all the uncertainty with this election, I think that's going to start to impact. That's going to make states who we may have, might have said, hey, we have a shot there, say, you know what, let's wait until after the election, like Ohio, I think will be a December bill. You know, so states like that, that's where the election is going to play. And because there's such uncertainty about the outcome and with some of these purple states, you're going to see them get a little bit skittish about doing anything that could upset their voters. But you don't perceive Biden has any axe to grind on this issue from a high level. No, no. I mean, Biden, look, and nor did Trump. You know, Biden is from yeah. Delaware. Uh, Trump was a casino owner. So I don't think that neither has, <laughs> I don't think this, this is just, unfortunately for some, this is just never going to be a federal issue. And, you know, it's just, I don't think Congress is going to step in and save the day. Uh, the only thing Congress might be able to do, and I don't think they're going to even do this, is resolve some of the issues surrounding the tribes. That to me is the biggest issue right now. Michigan gave us a model for how you do it. But how the tribes can operate is going to impact a lot of major states out west and in the south, you know, with Florida. Um, I guess let's take a few from the chat, a few more from the chat. And one just came in. There's been a, a lot of questions on social and how that fits in in getting more casual betters to bet. And um, Mike writes, has anyone heard about the pen barstool messaging capability slash strategy for the soon to drop app question mark seems if a betting app can also tie social groups together it will make the customer or customers stickier um maybe matt could answer that one sure i mean social even going back to the fantasy days your sports are social right and so we look to create different social experiences for um you know, for everybody. Yeah, I think the, and if you look at where we've seen success there, like as if, for instance, your refer a friend is a big um, acquisition channel for us. So, you know, getting, you know, I'm on the app and I invite Chris to join and we both get a referral bonus. Um, so, you know, all your friends are on this, you know, betting on the same app. Those things have been very successful. Um, I think chat features um, are something that you know, we've definitely explored and, you know, the ability to kind of give shit to each other and connect a friend group is definitely there. I'm probably a little bit more skeptical of um, like peer-to-peer -peer betting because typically what you find is peer-to-peer -peer betting, one is would need to be confined within state lines. So you're really talking about a marketplace or an ecosystem that would just be in New Jersey. So if your friend is in Pennsylvania, you can't have the bet because of the wire act. And then two, you, you, and we operate as Flutter, the largest betting exchange in the world, what you find is if it's just individual to individual betting, there's not enough inventory out there. So people can't get the bet that they want. And we found that the availability of bets is one of the most important um, features that people select on. So 
I think social will be important. I think it will come much more through the lens of connecting fans, giving people the ability to post their winning tickets on social media and things like that, as opposed to necessarily peer-to-peer betting. Let's take another one from our great uh, group of attendees that are out there. Um, How long before we see FanDuel or DraftKings acquire a media rights package from one of the big four leagues? Chris, you want to give your perspective before we let actually one of the two actually answer the question? I, I, I think in this decade, right? And I know that's a bit of a cop-out answer, but I, I just don't see a world in which you don't get that intersection sooner than later. And, and you say that from the standpoint of like right now, the one thing that seems odd, right? Like you can bet on a mobile device, but in the betting app, I can't watch the game. Like it's sort of the disconnection. Is it, is it basically that it'll never... no one will ever play nice in the sandbox if you're not all together in the sandbox, like if you're not owned by the same company? I think that's right. Or if you have that sort of deeply integrated partnership, that's also the the general trajectory. If you believe that Europe is crystal ball, the U.S. market is likely loud, that definitely supports the idea that you are going to see that, that tighter integration between operators and media companies. And look, it may well be that betting companies, especially if you have a clear number one, number two, if this ends up being more of a duopoly market as opposed to something distributed a little more equally, that could be one of the few entities with the true financial incentive to really bid up for those packages. So I, I think there are a lot of pieces that suggest that's the direction that we're heading. Before we let Matt ask, Sarah, I'd be curious, any regulatory issues or maybe Jeremy, any regulatory issues with leagues or sorry, you know, um, media rights being owned by any of these gambling entities or sorry, betting entities, I shouldn't say gambling, betting entities. I I don't know of an instance where they would, the media, they would own. I mean, from a licensing perspective, like NHL right now is partnered with IMG. I think FanDuel actually streams it for betting purposes. And yeah, that's the future. I think a lot of it is going to depend on timing with television contracts and when they start opening that whole can of worms up. But yeah, that's absolutely the the brass ring is to be able to stream in your phone, do in-play proposition betting and have a little bit more sophisticated of an experience, you know, through your mobile app. Um, Sticking on the, the media theme here, another Mike asks, can ESPN do anything significant in the space as part of Disney or do they need to be a standalone to really capitalize? And are they interested in capitalizing? Wait, I want to know how Matt got off the hook from answering the rights question. I want to <laughs> I'd prefer to. Matt, when are you buying? When are you buying NFL rights, Matt? Uh, I'll answer it then, Rich. I got a drop, unfortunately. Yep. Um, look, I think from our perspective, we approach it. We believe in the convergence. We stream more events through partnerships with Perform and IMG and everybody else than any other sports book out there. A lot of it is you know, one game of the NHL or uh, certain soccer leagues, et cetera. So we're big believers in the convergence. I think the big question we have is, um, is our job buying rights or is our job providing a co-authenticated experience for people that already have subscriptions elsewhere, right? If somebody else has already bought NBA League Pass, I don't, what I really, what they really want from me is not necessarily that I can give them the same rights. They want the ability to leverage that subscription in a seamless way with their sports betting. And so we're spending a lot of time on how do we deliver a better proposition, whether that results in us partnering with people or buying rights ourselves is TBD, but you'll definitely see us increase the amount of streaming integration that we do um, 
it'll just, I think, take a number of different forms. Uh, let me just squeeze one more in and then we'll go back to Chris. On, get back, back to that 50% of wagering. Yep. Is, it, is it also like 50% of, of the people that are on the app are, are betting live or is it it's like an 80-20 rule that 20% of the people are just crushing the live betting? Like, is, no, is I'd, the, I'd, have to, I'd have to check what the exact number is, but it's much closer to 50-50 than 80-20. Gotcha. Okay, thank you. Yeah, what we've seen is it's intuitive to people. Like people want to do it. And like where you give people like something that makes logical sense and is just fun to do, they'll pick it up instantly, even if it's not something that they've ever experienced in Vegas or somewhere else. Matt, I know you had a hard stop. We're going to keep going. We appreciate you joining and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. Brandon, you want to go back to your question for Chris? Yeah, Chris looked eager to answer. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Do you think ESPN is going to do anything in the space? And can can they do so, anything as part of Disney's Disney Eager too? No, I don't think there's anything about them being part of Disney that's especially prohibitive. Again, I, I think the general cultural attitude towards sports betting is that functionally it is not gambling, or it is something that is like gambling, but it is effectively the jaywalking of gambling. We we really do take a much different attitude in this country for placing a bet on sports versus pulling the handle on a slot machine or, or throwing the dice at, at a craps table. I think what ESPN has to answer is the same question we were talking about earlier and the question that Patrick and his team, I think, have a good head start on it, and I haven't seen much from ESPN yet on, which is how do you make this entertaining? How do you create a story out of this, a narrative out of this that's engaging to consumers? And then how do you overlay or place side by side that narrative structure with the underlying narrative structure of the sports themselves. I haven't seen much out of Disney to suggest that they're they're thinking hard about those issues, but obviously with the resources that they they have that they have, I think to to count them out, especially at this stage of the game, would be incredibly premature. I, I just I wonder whether will we ever see Disney running a ticker below the game? Like, I mean, c- could you imagine that happening on ESPN? Yes. Yeah, no problem. No problem. Sorry, Patrick. I mean, look, look at look at the closeness with which fantasy, right, is intermingled with ESPN's regular content. And there's a real money overlay there. There's a significant real money overlay. Everyone understands that this is done partially for entertainment, but there's also a significant amount of money involved. I think fantasy has been the bridge for a lot of people to get comfortable with sports gambling. Uh, and I, I don't know that ESPN will, will be any different. So I, I think the ticker is an inevitability. And, and on, the entertainment, on the entertainment side, ESPN has certainly created a lot of content in that category. Mm-hmm. They've created it in partner with us. Um, we, we had done a show with them. Um, I think, you know, the interesting one so far has certainly been Fox. They're the one that's sort of taken a more vertical integration approach to this, obviously, at, at a small scale with their investment. Um, but that will grow and become bigger. So I've generally been surprised that more of the major diversified media companies haven't made more significant investment here across all of them. And part of it is, it's only mobile in five states. Um, and and they're national it, or global companies. Yeah, right. but, but, it, but you know, I, I think that is not the right approach, but it's the one that we've seen. And I've met with every single media company and we've seen all of their different levels of interest and sophistication around it, honestly. And we know they'll all get there. It's just gonna be a matter of time. Sarah, you were gonna say something? Yeah, I mean, I. I don't take for not having announcements out yet, not a lack of interest. Um, and ESPN already has a deal actually with Caesars right now. So they, they are, I mean, they're all jumping in. They're all trying to figure out licensing restrictions, what that looks like. And, and clearly, I mean, what Chris is talking about, the narrative and creating content that's engaging, 
you know, that you obviously don't want to alienate your customer. She was going so well. It was going, it was rocking. Sarah, you stopped at alienate if you're, if you can hear me. Nope. Okay, so I'll go on. It's amazing how yeah. long it freezes for. It, it's, it's a long freeze, but um, Sarah, you stopped at alienate. You don't want to alienate. Well, like, I don't know, five minutes ago. I, like I said, I feel like my grandma, I just keep talking. No one's listening. It's, I, I think I sound great. Who is your ISP? Who's the cable company? I that can't this say because they're- Oh, we're going to shame them. We're totally going to shame them. Jeremy, we got a question here that I think you hopefully can answer. It says, speaking of the WIRE Act, will we see any changes with regard to that or is that simply too unpredictable? Too unpredictable. Uh, I think, again, it goes to Congress and Congress has proven to be the place where bills go to die or good ideas go to die. So I think that we are stuck with the WIRE Act for the time being uh, unless... I mean, I'll say this, if there was, if COVID-19 shut everything down for a very long time or some COVID-20 or 21, then maybe, yeah, I know, then maybe you'll see the casino industry and it depends on what the Senate looks like and all that. You might see a push. I mean, that's the thing about online gaming that we haven't touched on yet is that we saw for a couple months there a lot more interest. You know, in March and April, states were starting to talk about We've got to do online gaming. Uh, our casinos might not open till September. And then, of course, the economy started to open. If there's a second wave, that's where I think you might see states come back and say, let's do that. But that was far afield from your wire act question. It, it, it needs to get far more serious to, to make something like that, to have enough inertia to do something like that. Yes. Um, staying on regulatory, maybe for Jeremy. Um, how do you think about the recent regulations on advertising for betting companies in Europe and Asia and its impact on customer acquisition? And I will say, how do you think about those in the context of the U.S.? And do you think we will see some more things in the U.S.? I don't know if that's a Jeremy question or a Chris question or. I can take what I think on the U.S. I think on the. You know, I think the other question on customer acquisition on Europe, that's a Chris or a Patrick or anybody but me question. Um, <laughs> on the U.S., though, I haven't seen it. You know, we've seen it once or twice it's come up. I expect to see it in maybe some of the big, the more liberal blue states or progressive blue states or conversely, the very conservative red states like a Texas. But I, I, I personally think, you know, our, the AGA, when Sarah was there, one of the strongest things they did or the, the, the best thing they did was come out with the whole discussion of the legal market, which people have just kind of ignored. And the only way to defeat the illegal markets with advertising, you have to bring people over to the legitimate market. And that's going to be done through advertising. So restrictions on that actually hurt the growth of the market uh, and then can, you know, undermine the whole purpose of, of doing this, which is to take, you know, the illegal market and make it legal. I, I think a backlash is inevitable. I think Jeremy is right. You're not going to address in this first wave authorization. You're not going to necessarily see it baked into bills. I think states will start to revisit this. And, and really, it's a, not a question of if, it's a question of when. The advertising unchecked will get out of hand, whether in terms of its aggressiveness or its uh, ubiquitousness. And I think we saw a little preview of this with ubiquity of the advertising around draft FanDuel and the backlash that generated. 
you mix in 20 plus moderators, more money fueling this and a greater perceived prize at the end of the rainbow, there are definitely going to be people who push it too hard, too fast. And I think you are going to see some whiplash on this issue in, in the US. Is that going to happen in the next year or two? Uh, I don't think so. Are we going to be having a different conversation about this around 2025, 2026? Yes. Again, I, I do think it's tempting to think that our experience will be wholly distinct from Europe's, but there really aren't a lot of fundamentally good reasons why that should be so. So what we're seeing happen there, I think we can expect to see happen in the U.S. And, and again, it just becomes a, a question of when that kicks in. This is probably uh, the only jump. difference. With, okay. oh, sorry. Go, go ahead, go ahead no, Jeremy. Jeremy. No, no, Jeremy, go ahead. I was going to say, the only difference with fantasy was that it hadn't been passed in any states. So when you're going to see that, that advertising, like Illinois, that's the state I think you should watch for major advertising because they have a short-term online registration you know, uh, through the governor's executive order. If we see a ton of advertising in the fall, it's already been approved. You know, With Fantasy, the backlash was in part because no one had ever heard of these companies. All of a sudden, every single ad you saw was DraftKings and FanDuel. I, I think if there's a backlash, we're five, 10 years out uh, on that. When you think about... Um leagues i mean we, we've got the regulatory side meaning meaning more and more states legalizing but if, if we go up to we've got the leagues we've got the teams and we've got the broadcasters sometimes you know in many cases that's a regional sports network uh generally owned by sinclair some owned by uh, nbc and other people but like where does the rsn fit into this whole pie how how important is the broadcaster um, sometimes they're owned by the team in part. Like, how does this all play out from here? Yeah, I don't even I'll, know who would I'll, best I'll answer that. that. Is that Sarah? Yeah, I'll take that one until I freeze. Um, RSN <laughs> is incredibly important. It goes back to your comment about uh, advertising. Why there haven't been huge, massive national media deals is because this is rolling out on a state-by-state -state basis. And they want, you know, the companies want to be micro-targeted. The RSN is critical could not be better positioned right now from a sports betting perspective to directly tie into that fan base that you're trying to target in the Midwest or the Northeast. Um, so they are extremely well positioned to take advantage of this opportunity. And where do you think we are in terms of them having the, the connection to tie to the different platforms? Like, do they are they there yet? Or I mean, RSNs historically are not the most technologically advanced um, businesses in terms of like knowing who their actual viewers even are. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I saw a comment on the side too. They were someone was asking about the comparison between the casino industry and the the media industry, and are there lessons learned from the cannibalization concept in OTT and how everyone's going to pivot? And so you know, I know that the RSNs are very closely Sinclair. NBC, Comcast, they're all looking at this. And I think there are going to be different waves. I mean, you talk about technology. There's going to be different waves, not only from a media company, broadcast company, league team, operator standpoint, different machinations throughout the next couple of years where we'll, we'll get to where we need to be. I mean, we've brought up latency issues and, you know, there's a lot of problems that have to be solved. Um, and it's not going to happen overnight. And that's good because the states aren't going to all legalize overnight either. But I do think that you're going to see a very close tie to leveraging that sports content now with the most powerful tool out there, fan engagement tool, which is sports betting, and closely getting closer to ingraining it. The other point I was going to make when you asked about advertising, the difference between Europe and the U.S. is 
Europe doesn't have these big centralized leagues like the NFL, MLB, NBA, NHL, who I think right now have been extremely responsible about how they're letting um, operators advertise in stadium during games. You know, it's not going to be with the RSNs. Every single spot is going to be back to back to back with gaming, you know, advertisements. I think that they're dipping their toe into the water. And so there's going to be more regulation through that mechanism, which did not exist in Europe. So now that Matt dropped, I feel like now's the perfect time to bring up the, what does everyone think of the barstool pen transaction? I mean, I'd be curious, like, um, at least on paper, the goal is right to use the barstool social brand to elevate pen from a non-player into the, I guess the quote unquote, the big leagues uh, in line with, you know, I mean, if, if we had Portnoy on this, uh, he's probably busy day trading right now, but um, if we had him on right now, he would say he's going to be number three within 12 months of launching. I'd just be curious, like, do any of you believe that, um, you know, that's going to happen over the next year? Like, can they be a top five, let alone top three contender that quickly? You know, I'll just jump in there quick. The, the big, the big one to to really think that hasn't really I, they kind of half-assed it. If the market is bet three six five, they're they're a juggernaut in Europe. I'm yep. curious about how they've launched uh, in terms of Penn National and and Barstool. We like that deal a lot because uh, uh, it shows that operators are, are thinking along those lines, and it's really good for us because Barstool will now be the exclusive affiliate partner of Penn National so that hopefully some of those dollars that would be going to Barstool for conversion for other books can come to us, which is a good thing. But, uh, you know, and I think another thing that I, I'm curious about, too, is this sort of unfolds. And Matt kind of pushed back against me a bit when I was saying it's less about brand and mostly about price and odds. So I think Barstool will do a, a good job of capturing casual betters and net new betters. I thought it was super smart. I mean, I thought it was extremely well thought out. I mean, that team at Penn is really, really thoughtful. And, um, you know, they were looking at their options of a buyer build. First of all, I've just been working with them for years. They are super scrappy. They are smart. They're, um, they do have sharp elbows. I, I know they're tough competitors. So, um, you know, I think that they were looking at their brand and you, we talk about the casino industry and sort of now pivoting to mobile and online this is an operation, this is a regional casino operator that has over 40 casinos in 21 states, massive footprint in the U.S., and they had to figure out now how they were going to pivot to a younger demographic, to online. They. She was doing so well. I think that was the most words she's got. I'm back, I'm back, you're I'm back, back. You're back. You're I'm back. back. You're back. Matt dropped, it was him. Now yeah. I'm, I'm picking up speed here. You are, you are. Um, anyway, long and short of it, smart. They could have bought or build. They bought. No, they look, bought a, they're, a they're also going to have a venue. They're going to build new venues. Like, I think it's interesting, right, that we're going to have a pizza shop that lets you gamble probably in Jersey City in the next 12 months, I would presume. Yeah, yeah. smart. Wait, how are you going to stand out? Yeah, how are you going to stand out in these markets, right? You're, you're talking about New Jersey, you're going to have 20 brands before too long. Colorado, 15 plus brands, both states have population under 10 million. How do you possibly stand out in those markets with products, with all due respect to, to Matt's company, that are largely commoditized or are quickly heading toward the point of commoditization? I think Penn looked around and said, our strategy for cutting through is going to be brand and voice. 
and Barstool, whatever you think personally about the brand and the voice, however that hits you personally, put that aside. They, they definitely have it. They're one of the few mass market sports properties that does have it. So once Penn settled on that strategy of here's how we're going to cut through and compete, I, I think they made basically the only deal that, that they could make. And I think the deal gets incredibly, it gets smarter by several orders of magnitude, the more aggressive states get with authorizing online casinos. Because that's been the massive surprise out of New Jersey is how strong DraftKings and FanDuel have been with casino revenue. And they're not taking revenue from their competitors. They are generating incremental revenue for... So this is an audience that they have that does want to gamble, does want to play online casino, but only wants to do it under a certain brand that they have an affinity for. So if you see more online casino expansion, that's where Penn's bet really starts to to pay off in, in a big way. And I'm Patrick, I assume this is great for you because more bigger, stronger companies, platforms is good for your business. Absolutely. Um, you know, I think that finding the best avenues for conversion for these books is going to be a game that will be played for, like I said earlier, potentially a decade to come. Chris, does it surprise you that DraftKings market cap is is so large? Um, it, I think it's larger than the the Flutter FanDuel fan market cap, and that's a much bigger company. And I think um, FanDuel has a bigger market share than DraftKings here as it is. Um, if, if you've looked at them on a relative basis, what should the spread be? Look, uh, I hate to keep returning to this concept of narrative, but, but I think it's the instructive one here. What you have with DraftKings is an unadulterated pure play on the US market from someone who has the, the potential to take meaningful share. You could buy the score, no disrespect to them. I, I don't think they're ever going to be like a top one or two in these state markets. They can build a very good business, but in terms of can they move the market, the, the answer is no. So I think what you're seeing is an expression by investors that we want a pure play for the US online gambling market. We look around the rest of the landscape, there isn't another pure play. Uh, William Hill and Flutter both have significant international exposure. You know, with Flutter, if something happens in Russia, that impacts poker stars. Something happens in the UK, that's a problem for the retail business for Patty, right? You don't get those legacy issues with DraftKings. So like for like, obviously you could pick any number of companies from the gambling sphere and bang them up against DraftKings and say, this doesn't make any sense. If you take the narrative perspective and, and think that investors are really looking for a way to pure play the, the US market, to pick a winner in the US market, I don't think you have a, a lot of other options. Arguably, you have no other options besides DraftKings. So you're seeing that demand, I think, flow disproportionately toward DraftKings. That, that's the answer that, that I come up with. Because obviously, if you do it on, on the fundamentals, you don't get anywhere near to, to that number. I think that makes sense. Maybe Patty Power should just spin out FanDuel. And I, I think you'll see more of that. I think you'll see within the next year or two, I think you'll see Eldorado once the Caesars merger goes through. I think you'll see them spin off uh, their online operations. I think a lot of people are looking at what's happening with DraftKings right now and asking themselves the question, how do I get to IPO or how do I take the US centric part of my business? But if you were sitting in Matt's shoes, when you if you were sitting in Matt's shoes, wouldn't you want to be a separate company now versus attached to the larger flutter? Yes. Yeah, just just absolutely. I mean, they are. It's a great company. It's also a company that's an. It's a Russian nesting doll of acquisitions at this point, right? And that brings with it some advantages, and and it also brings with it a certain slowness and a certain dilution of focus that 
inevitably put you at, at something of a competitive disadvantage. Obviously, they're overcoming that quite nicely, status quo. They're showing that it can work, and they have a lot of interesting pieces like TVG that DraftKings doesn't have. So it's not that simple of a story, but yeah, I think net-net, if I'm in match shoes, I prefer to be heading up that division as a separate company with a separate P&L, and maybe I can draw the resources of the parent company, but I'll not have to suffer their their friction from all the other markets and products that are material. We just so got a couple wanna, of questions left. Well, I, I actually wanted to just go back to, again, the differentiation thing, because I think, Patrick, you talked a lot about price, but then you were mentioning that, like, Barstool is good, and I would think that, like, Barstool, Penn Gaming, they're not going to want to try and differentiate on price. They're going to differentiate on the brand, right? So I'm just, how do we kind of mash right. those two together in terms of, you know, who ends up winning and, and which which app or gaming choice someone makes? I certainly think brand's important, but I think as betters get more sophisticated, they really do realize that that price and odds do reflect on your success in betting. But I think they're going to they're going to be successful because they're going to convert a lot of net new betters. You know, and doesn't that just lead to massive commoditization if everyone's effectively yeah. competing on price, putting out promotions? Again, I just think of like kind of Uber Lyft. I mean, how does that? Well, and, um, you know, why does, why does blue? I mean, travel is a, is, is a weird kind of thing to be talking about right now with the COVID scenario, but how does JetBlue or American or, you know, obviously they have different routes that they compete on and, and that's a big part sure. of it, but can they really build on what is a commoditized experience largely um, with, and with other things that are going to appeal to a user? Maybe it's some of the casino offerings they have, some of the venues that they have, but but again, I think you're, you're with mobile betting taking over the market as it has in New Jersey. I think that as much as user experience should be uh, an important part of this experience and, you know, love Matt and love FanDuel. But these experiences on these sites are very challenging to use. They're challenging to sign up for. You get dropped in the reg flow often. Like it's so to be able to build something that's very seamless, that's very easy to use is not inconsequential, I believe, in that case. Um, but, you know, they're going to be the kind of better to start at, at Barstool that are kind of in the bet $5, get 25 versus, versus our a platform where it's like, you know, bet 50, get 500. Like we, we, we are, I think a more, not at the scale that they are, but I think in over but time. If people have five apps on their phone. I'm just going to keep rotating my bet five, my bet five. I'm going to go from one promotion to the next. A game is a game. I, you know, if I've got the five apps right on the phone and, or, you know, through your platform, it, I, you know, yeah, well, I, I think you're right. I think I think you do hit a certain race to the bottom on transparent pricing. I think what you'll see is betting companies start to build products where it's not quite as easy to appreciate the VIG. And I think you'll see a lot of companies start to obscure the VIG in more complicated or non-traditional betting products that, that may meet some consumer demand as well. Yeah, right? Betters are pretty good With, at sniffing out the VIG. <laughs> the VIG some, some, class, some class is, right? But I yeah. think it's important to not live in the Vegas bubble. And I'm as guilty of this as, as anyone, if not more so. Sure. When you're at a Super Bowl party and everyone's playing a squares game, no one's asking what the cut is, right? And there usually isn't a cut, but, but you get my point. I think there's going to be a class of bettors who aren't as concerned about price. And I think books are also going to get better about creating products where it's not quite as easy to look at two competing books and say, here's the price A, here's the price B. But, but generally speaking, yeah, the fat middle of, of bets uh, are going to be relatively transparent in terms of pricing. And I do think that, that books are going to coalesce or the of that pricing and differentiate on brand experience 
and and intangibles. But I mean, you know, I, I think I'm, the core I'm just thinking of, 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 I'm just thinking of live, right. but I'm just thinking about like live betting and latency. I mean, to me, like the live betting now, if I'm waiting for a line in between a play, that has value to me, and maybe I'm willing to stomach you know a greater price. You've got you know, new technologies that are company, that come in that are reducing latency even further. So I would guess that it's going to play some role, but even that may, that technology could, be, could get commoditized over time too, right? I think also yeah. never underestimate, I, I hate to keep going back to online poker, never underestimate the, the, the willingness of a consumer to say, that's the brand for me. That brand reflects who I'm. And if you think about the sort of full tilt poker stars dichotomy, I think that's destructive here, right? Full Tilt was a place, you know, I think you you wanted to be part of the cool crowd. That yep. was, and that was their whole, you know, the people in the black suits and, and that was the image. And I, I think you'll see sports well, books start that, to lean more the, on maybe that. Maybe that's the well. social aspect of it as well, where the barstool stoolies are getting in there and everyone's betting together or whatever it is and yep. get betting against each other. One of the questions that came in, Sarah, was on the RSN side saying that the advertising side is obviously really exciting given what's going on in sports betting, sort of as you described, but they sort of face the problem of they have really expensive fees and consumers are paying a lot of money uh, and the cable and satellite companies are starting to push back and either drop them or, or um, you know, I mean, we're seeing cord cutting at record levels. You know what? What happens to the RSNs? Like, do, do these assets need to be owned by? I mean, we've seen Amazon dip their toe in the water on the RSN business. Like, do RSNs need different owners? Do the you know? I know the uh, the MLB looked at buying them. They obviously didn't. But like, does the the ownership structure of of RSNs need to change to really execute on the opportunities that you're talking about? Would have loved to have answered that. Um, froze up. <laughs> oh, sorry. I think I got the gist of it. Um, uh, basically, this, does ownership of RSNs world. need to change? Yeah, no. I mean, look, this is your world. You know far better about it than I do um, as, a, as an observer and how it ties back into sports betting. I think that there's a lot of crossover and a lot of nexus. But, I mean, there's no doubt. Look, I, I think that, you know, RSNs are Sinclair. They're all looking at their Did I freeze? Yeah. It's okay. We forgive you. I try. Brandon, you want to end it? Yeah. Um, first of all, thank you guys for staying over time. We, it's already, what, 523. So you did above and beyond your duty. Thank you all. Um, and maybe just to end it, what year do each of you think California and New York will have legalized mobile betting? Let's start with Sarah and say it quickly before it freezes. <laughs> I don't think it's going to be in the same year. Um, and I'm hopeful it's, it, it's two, two, two something. Um, it's going to be a long, it's going to be a while. It depends on what form, but I, I, you know, look, I think maybe within the next three years. Okay. What about you, Jeremy? 2021 for New York, uh, 2023 up and running in California. Wow. Pat Okay, that got a wow out of Sarah. Okay, Patrick? Jeremy's much smarter about this shit than I am, so I'm going with his exact answer. 21 for New York and 23 for California. I'll take the over on, uh, on both. Uh, I'm going to pound the over on, on both. But look, I think New York is near term. I think 2022 is is definitely not out of the, their own ability. California, it, the thing is with all of this, it's, it's easy to feel like with time it will 
because then everything gets sort of fuzzy and you think, oh, well, five years, certainly things will be out. But in California, I can look back 10 years and we're still arguing about the same things between major stakeholders that we were arguing in 2010. I don't know that that time solves on this issue, so a lot closer to 2026, 27 for California. A closer to, to Jeremy's view, more bullish than New York for sure. So 2023, 26. So we are not betting on a up, constitutional up amendment anytime soon in California is, ma- is va- basically the problem. But well, I guess not, we have a nice wa- line. Yeah. Well, we have a nice wager between Jeremy and Chris. And I guess we can we'll see we can revisit this in, in 12 months and see what progress has been made. But uh, on behalf of everyone at Lightshed and everyone that joined in, we had a great crowd today. Uh, we really appreciate everyone taking so much of their time to help us understand a little bit about a very important issue. Uh, thank you all and be safe. Thank you. Yeah. And work on your Internet. <laughs> <laughs> Go Liverpool, bet long. <laughs>